This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Father, bless our time together. Lord, as we come to you today, we would pray that you will indeed speak to our hearts. Hosanna, save us now. Thank you, Lord. We cannot look at Easter without being hugely grateful for what you've done. Thank you. The Macedonian Empire, at its time, ruled the world. Begun, as with many great world empires, as a small city-state, not terribly important or impressive, led by one guy called Philip of Macedon, Philip started out, he went from his area in the north of Greece, spread down into what's now Turkey, then Asia Minor. But it was really when his son came to power, a guy called Alexander, you might have heard of Alexander the Great, he expanded it even further. And so at its peak, the Macedonian Empire stretched all the way from Western Greece, right the way through, my wrong wrong way around, Western Greece, right the way through to the Indus River in India and down into Egypt. It was a massive empire for its time. And then Alexander died. And as often happens when you've got a great strong empire, it's founded on a person. And after uh, Alexander died, probably murdered, the empire went into a series of civil wars and eventually split up into four smaller empires. And it's one of those that concerns us because it falls in with a bit of the history that we're going to be looking at today. Jerusalem, the center of of so much of what we read in scripture comes into play. Because one of those four kingdoms was what was known as the Seleucid Empire. And in the year 200 BC, the Seleucids took control of Jerusalem. So far, so good. They were fairly benign. Everything went along fairly well. But as time went by, along came an emperor who was nasty. Antiochus Epiphanes was a really horrible guy. And not only was he keen to insert and enforce Greek culture throughout his empire, he had a way of doing it so as to annoy people. Now, you good people, you know your Bible fairly well. You know that the Old Testament is full of how to do worship properly if you're a, a Jew. And you know that Jews are not big on pigs. In fact, they don't touch pigs at all if they can help it. So when in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes comes into Jerusalem, takes over the Jewish temple and declares it to be the temple of Jupiter, and takes a pig and slaughters that pig on the high altar in honor of Jupiter, the Jews were appalled. They remembered what Daniel had said a few hundred years before about the abomination of desolation coming into the temple, and this was what they saw. It was horrendous. Shortly after that, one priest, the name of Matthias, decided that no, he was going to stand up to this. And when the ruler said, you will sacrifice to Jupiter, he said, no, I won't. They said, right, you're out. Somebody else will sacrifice. And he said, no, they won't. And he killed him. And so began 
what was going to become known as the Maccabean Revolt. His sons spread out throughout the entire region of what we now know as Israel, that area of Judea, and proceeded to revolt against the Seleucids. In the year 164, they won. They beat the Seleucids. And Judas Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem. It was on the 23rd day of Kislev, a day which today is celebrated throughout Jewish culture as the day of Hanukkah. He came in, having driven out the Seleucids and all their Hellenistic influences, came into the temple and set to reestablish Jewish religious practice. Went to light that seven-candled menorah, but there was only enough anointed and holy oil for one day. So they set the lamps, they lit them. And it takes time to consecrate oil and get it right if you're going to do it by the full ritual. They only had one day's oil. And tradition says that that oil burned for eight days, which gave them time to produce more oil. We don't do big candles, we don't do big ceremony much, but just the power of God. When Judas came into the city on that day, the crowds greeted him. They welcomed him. See the conquering hero come. He came in riding on his war horse, as Alan said earlier, that conquering hero who came, came from battle. And they cut branches off the trees and they waved power branches and they shouted and they screamed. And when he came in, he cleansed the temple and he made everything good. The conquering hero had come. There was palms. There was singing. There was joy in the city. Hundred and ninety-four years later, we pick up the story. Alan's read from John. I'm going to reading from the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter eleven. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethsaida and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, "Go into the village in front of you." And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will bring it back here immediately. And they went away and, find a colt, and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Hundred and ninety-four years had passed. But the history hadn't. 
I didn't mention that the Maccabees actually only held Jerusalem for a few short years before they were beaten again. But that didn't make a difference. In the culture, it was important. It was vital. They knew that they were God's people. They knew that God had redeemed them, and he could do it again. Now it's 30 AD, and the Romans are in power. They are oppressed by a new army, by a new empire. And here comes a king. Here comes a king riding into Jerusalem. And something went ding in their cultural mind as they realized this is something we've seen before. This is probably not, in fact, almost certainly not the first time that Jesus came to Jerusalem. Certainly when you read in John's gospel, you get the impression of at least three visits to Jerusalem. Whether he went every Passover during his ministry period, we don't know. A book like Mark, being the shortest and quickest of the Gospels, he doesn't waste time. You've got over half of the book of Mark concentrating on one week. And therefore, tell us about the others. No, he's not interested. His focus was to get to this point and the seven days that follow. But you get in this passage a very clear impression that this was not a surprise. Jesus had been here before. He gets his two disciples and said, go into the city and you will find a cult. Jesus is the son of God, yes. God knows everything, yes. But this doesn't feel like omniscience, does it? This feels like, guys, it's sorted. There's a cult standing by. And by the way, here's the code word. When somebody asks you what you're doing, say, the master has need of it. Okay, I'm over-reading it a bit, but you get the feeling that there is more to this than some itinerant preacher from Galilee just wandering into the big city with bare feet. There is a groundswell in place. The people are aware of Jesus. The people are aware of what he's doing, what he's doing. And they said, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. While I was preparing, I ran across that line. I was quite challenged. When people say to you, so what do you do? Oh, I'm an accountant. No, I'm, I'm a social worker. No, I'm an expert at all things green and flowery. What are you doing? I'm doing what the Lord needs. It's quite a different thing. And it's where we need to be. The disciples go, they collect the cult, they bring it back to him. And when they brought the cult to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it. I find this such a fascinating image. It's, it's a young cult. No one's ever written on this thing before. So it's probably not full-size donkey. It's cloaks. Was it for his comfort? Was it for the donkey's comfort? I don't know. But others, they spread leafy branches in the street and they waved the branches. Other gospels, as we've already read, speak about them being palm branches, which is where our Christian tradition of Palm Sunday comes from. But just that feeling of honor and glory and let us make praise. Let us show that we welcome this person, that we honor them. It's a day of joy. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of... The hero. It's the day of, is this another Maccabee? 
Is this going to make a difference? Is this going to be the king who we need to set us free from what's oppressing us? It's tough here. It's tough being under Roman rule. It's tough having to obey what the Romans say. Is this the king? But he's on a donkey. He's not on a horse. He comes in peace. He's, he's, Jesus is king. Yes, there's something special about him. We've seen what he's doing in Galilee. We've seen his power. He's different, but on a donkey. He comes in peace. Not in conquest. In the first century, they didn't despise donkeys as much as we do. A donkey was still a noble beast. It was not uncommon for kings to ride donkeys, but when they did, they came in peace. They came in stability. They didn't come to say, we have won. They said, it's okay. We've got it. It was a position of security. And that's how Jesus came into Jerusalem. Secure. And at peace. That's how he comes into our lives. Because he has conquered already. He is king. But on this day in 30 AD, he was making a very clear claim. Because he spoke to what the Old Testament tells us about what the Messiah is and would be. In Zechariah chapter 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming in peace. Christians, we know that Jesus doesn't always make our lives easy. He does cause unrest. He does smack us upside the head when we need it. We know the story. We know that by the Mark account, probably the next day, he's into the temple creating merry mayhem. He does. When he finds things in our life that need sorting, he sorts them. But overall, our king comes in peace. Your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Thank you, Alan, for what you said earlier. Because it's something we need reminding. So often we think of Hosanna because of its association with palm branches and happiness. That we think of Hosanna as meaning praise, and it doesn't. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna doesn't mean yay God. It means, oh God, save now. Hosanna. Yes, it was an amazing day. Yes, it was loud, it was raucous, but it was, come on king. Save now. It was an appeal. It was a plea. Save us. We need you, King. We have certain needs. We need your power. We need you on our side. We need you to do what you are called to do. King, save now. Just as Judas Maccabeus had saved us from the Seleucids, we need you to save us from the Romans. We need you to restore temple worship. We need you to get us back to where we should be. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Jesus coming in victory and peace. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. That was a big ask because that Roman oppression was big and it mattered. It mattered to them deeply. And Jesus cares. Yes, Jesus cares. But that wasn't why he came because he came with a different mission. Jesus came, yes, to be our savior. When they said, save now, he understood because he had come to save. But his saving was not to be saving them from Rome not to be saving them from oppression, not to be saving them from poverty. He had an earlier calling, a deeper calling. Go back in Jesus' life too, before he was born. There's a carpenter in Nazareth. A carpenter whose fiance is pregnant. A carpenter who's stressed out of his head. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Before he was born, you will call his name Jesus, Jeshua, Savior. Because he will save his people from their sins. His role was much bigger than just beating the largest empire the world had ever seen. His role was much bigger than restoring those in poverty and oppression. His role was much bigger than giving incredible privilege to those who had been incredibly put down. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Flip to the other end of the Bible where we've got Paul speaking and Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not to save nice people. Not to save ugly people. Not to save the unemployed or the ill. Yes, he works in our life. Yes, he does miraculous, wonderful things in so many ways. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save Sinners. That is his primary goal. No Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you not to save you from the Roman oppression. Not to restore Jewish culture. He's become, he has come to be your savior from sin. What about us? When we cry to the Lord, as we do, what are we asking to be saved from? An economy that is world famous for the wrong reasons? A political system that is beyond the understanding, even of those of you who try? Do we ask to be saved from unemployment? or from various illnesses, physical, mental, emotional, relational, those things that are plaguing us, do we cry to God saying, save us from this? Do you, like me, find yourself in a situation in life where you go, Lord, I cannot do this. I need you to save me from this circumstance. 
If that is you, don't stop. Because he is a loving father and he will care and he will work with you and he will work to rescue you in his way and in his time. History tells us that the Israel of 30 AD did not get released from the Romans. In fact, they got thoroughly messed up by the Romans and 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. It doesn't mean that God didn't answer the prayers, just that he had a bigger plan. And at this point in our history, as we read the uh, Holy Week stories, the bigger plan was much bigger, because he had come to save. Hosanna. Yes, save us from all sorts of things. He can, but that's not his primary purpose. Save us from sin. But Lord, don't worry about my sin. I'll sort that out. Look, if you can just sort out my boss, that's all I need. My current boss or for some, my future boss. But just sort him out. Get his mind right. I'll sort out my sin. I'll, 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 live, I'll live better. I'll, I'll make a plan. I'll, I won't do that again. Why does the creator of the universe come down in human form to save me from something that I think I could do myself? Why does he who created heaven and earth is beyond time, is perfect, is righteous? Why does he choose to save us from the one thing we can save ourselves from? Simply because he knows everything. And he knows that I cannot save myself from my sin. I am rubbish. I will be kind and politically correct and I will say that I cannot speak for you. But what I'm thinking at the moment is that you're rubbish too. You cannot save yourself from your sin. Don't give up trying. Yes, we are called to live righteously. Yes, we are called to live for God. Yes, we are called to be Christians, not just to say Christians. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And oh, they need it. That's why he came. Why is sin so massive? Why is sin so important? Why did Jesus want to die for our sins and not to die for our oppressions? Because he sees how bad our sins are. If you go and beat up Rob after service... Margie will be really upset. Several of us would be quite disappointed. Everybody else might be newsworthy, but it's really not important to them. If by some freak of madness you go and you decide to go and assault the president, a large section of the state would be quite upset. You would come off seriously second best in that circumstance. Why? Because the president is more important, more influential, bigger, more powerful than Rob is. If you decide to assault Almighty God, 
all of creation is offended. Because he is supreme. This is why sin is important. If I do one thing which I think is, I shouldn't have done that. It insults not a little God, but eternal God. The offense is infinite, even if the action feels small. You cannot think that you can save yourself from an infinite wrongness. That little thing you do, you know what it is. It's little, but the number of thousands of times you've done it, it's actually becoming a quite accumulative little, isn't it? And every one of those is infinitely offensive to an infinite God. Hosanna, save us. Save us now. It wasn't just a mistake. It was an assault on an infinite holy God. In Romans 3, we read that none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even you. You can't save yourself. Only he can. There's no distinction between those of us who pretend to look good and those who actually inside know they're not. Still in Romans 3, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You just cannot save yourself. It's too big. Which is why we cry, Hosanna, save us now. Because we need that salvation. But it's Easter. It's Easter. There is hope. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's us. Palm Sunday today, through this remarkable week, take a bit of time, get into all four Gospels and read what happens between the Palm Sunday account and the end of the book. Live with him and his 12 through this time. Prepare to have your mind wrecked because it's just, it's mind-blowing how much he packs into a week. And then Friday, where the Savior of all the world gives up his life because he came into the world to save sinners. And then Sunday, couldn't hold him down. He came, he did so much for us because of how much we need him to do. Because of what we need, he chose to accept such suffering. He loves us so much. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the chastisement that has brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Hosanna. Save us. Bring us peace. Heal our wounds. We can't save ourselves. But he did. He did it already. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. And the news speaks of what has happened. He's done it. He died a cruel, merciless, devastating death because he is Savior. And he will save the people from their sins. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my step, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed the pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Behold. Your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The Savior humbly coming to die, humbly coming to take our sin, humbly coming to save. Hosanna, save us. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, so he died, and that's it, we're done. For reasons which I do not know, and I suspect even in all eternity, he's still going to be letting me find out. He's chosen to let 2,000 years of absolute mayhem roll after that date. And he's given us the opportunity, therefore, to call on him. Not just to look back and say, Jesus is lovely. Hasn't he done well? But to actually stop and say, Lord, thank you. We need you. And today, in 2018, when we cry Hosanna, we can be crying with deep sincerity, Lord, save us. Except now it's not, Lord, go to Calvary and save us. But, Lord, Help us to accept the salvation that you have already given. Hosanna, save us now. Help us to accept the sacrifice that you've made. This is why you came. This is what you want from us. And by the way, Jesus didn't die on Calvary because it was fun. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because he loves you. He loves you deeply. Hosanna. Save us. Now, I know most of us are here today because this is already a truth in our life. Most of us are here because we have recognized this a while back and we are still absolutely brain dead to understand how Possibly the righteous king of all the universe would choose to die for us. Don't lose the wonder. 
But maybe there are some who are just suddenly going, hang on, this is my story. I need a savior. I don't understand why the story about Jesus having to die. That's okay. You don't have to understand. Don't stop thinking. No. Just accept for now. He came and died for you. And then work with him to help as he helps you to understand. Because he came to save you. Today I would ask you to be brave. To be bold. To come to him and say, Hosanna. Save now. Save me from my sin. Yes, Lord, there are other things I want you to do as well. I want you to heal my family. I want you to fix that situation I'm in. I want you to make the difference that I need or I feel I need. But above all, Hosanna, save me from my sin. For who, O oh Lord, can save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. But your grace is deeper still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us. Let us out of death. You alone belongs the highest praise. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you very much, Mike. That certainly sets us up for Easter, doesn't it? Causes us to think, causes us to rejoice, causes us to remember, causes us to reflect. Thank you very much, Mike. That was just powerful. At the front, we've got some crackers and juice. And we're going to have what some people call the Eucharist, some people call Holy Communion, some people call the Lord's Supper, and some people call the breaking of bread. We call it the breaking of bread here. Some people think that this miraculously, this juice that's been poured out of a bottle and this crackers that have been broken up, they believe that it becomes the literal flesh and the literal blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. We believe this is symbolic and we do it in remembrance of what the Lord Jesus did all those years ago. Let me read from Romans 5. It says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we heard this morning. Christ died for us. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives us some instruction for how we do this. It's not just willy-nilly. This is is very important. Something that people do sometimes once a week. I know guys that do it every day. We do it here once a month. But Paul was giving instruction to a church who weren't doing it very right. Some of them were getting drunk at this. They had to do. Some of them were eating all the food and leaving the poor people hungry. But Paul tells us this in verse 23 
of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. We've got crackers. When he had given thanks, he broke it and says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was pointing to his death. It wasn't literal flesh they were eating. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not in relationship with Jesus and he is not your Savior and he's not taking your sin away, please do not take that. That's what the Word of God says. It says a man ought to examine himself. Hopefully we examine ourselves every day so that we're ready for this. If not, you need to get praying a lot and asking God for forgiveness right now. Ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Some people are weak and sick. Some people have died and fallen asleep. So when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If you're hungry, go home to the bride this afternoon and eat. Make sure you meet together so that it doesn't result in judgment. We need to confess our sins. The Bible says when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and get ourselves right before we eat this. Now you might say, Alan, I've done a lot of sin this week. Should I take this bread and wine? Yes. Yes, doesn't disqualify any of us. We're all sinners. We've all failed, every single one of us. But he is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us. So let's just take a moment of reflection. I always like the old hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Survey him right now in your mind, in your spirit. Look to him. This is not miraculous bread and wine. This is just crackers and juice that helps us to remember the one who remembered us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. We can't bring him anything. He has given us everything. So I encourage you, after you reflect, to come and take some drink, Take a little bit of biscuit. You can come as an individual. I like it personally. It's for individual. I like it for individuals because oh, it's me. He did it for me. But you can do it as a couple. You can do it as a family. You can do it as friends. You can break bread together. Let's do it unto him, the one. Remember him, the one who remembered us. Lord Jesus, we thank you when we survey that wondrous cross. We say, save us. Save us again. Save us again, O oh God. Hosanna. Save us again. From our sin and our foolishness, we recognize that we are wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God, would you forgive us? Forgive me my sin. Cleanse me from unrighteousness. And God, as we take the bread that reminds us of your broken body and we drink the juice that reminds us of the blood that was poured out on the cross, we remember you and we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for such a great salvation for such a great sacrifice, and for such a great Savior, we worship you in Jesus' name.
have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.